This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. The question I'm going to ask is, who wrote Hebrews? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's uh, uh, quite a question. I begin with the introduction of my paper. The author addressed his epistle to the Hebrews. Well, yes, <laughs> that's really profound. What else do you expect? Hebrews. Hold on. What do you mean by that term Hebrews? He could have said, I am addressing my epistle to the Jews. But I submit to you that the name Hebrews is a polite term that avoids any disparaging nuances associated with the term Jews. Paul calls himself not a Jew of the Jews. Paul calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. If you want two texts, here they are. Philippians 3, verse 5, and 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22. Continuing. The epistle addressed to the Hebrews is addressed to Jewish Christians who probably resided in Rome. The epistle itself provides no direct indication that Gentile Christians were included. There is no reference to Gentiles throughout the 13 chapters. This observation becomes clear in the first two verses of the introduction. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and it would be wise for you to keep your Bible at Hebrews and keep it open. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. He talks about the forefathers. Our forefathers, referring to the physical and spiritual forebears of the Jews. And in verse 2, he speaks about the Son. And that is rather interesting. Uh, the word is in the Greek it doesn't say the son it doesn't say his son it says son now I'm not going into politics but if you would go to the White House and talk to the occupant of the White House and ask him the simple question sir what is is your occupation, he probably would say, I am president. Why? Because there is no other president in this country. He's the one and only. Now, this is also true when we talk about son. Christ Jesus is the unique Son of God. The French, maybe some of you know French, the French have the phrase, fils unique, the unique son. You and I are adopted sons and daughters. Angels are created sons, Job chapter 1. But Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And so, the writer of Hebrews writes, But in these last days he has spoken to us by Son. The Old Testament era, all the prophets, minor and major prophets, mention them. 
in the New Testament era, one, namely the Son. And then, I must mention that the writer of Hebrews, right at the outset, doesn't say, I would like to talk to you about Jesus or Jesus Christ. No, he says, Son. He doesn't say, Lord. No, he says, Son. Why? Because he wants to stress the divinity of Jesus Christ as is evident in the succeeding verse. Read with me verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. The exact representation of His being. I think, if my memory serves me, and if I'm wrong a couple of years, be so gracious as to forgive me, but it was in the late 50s, early 60s, that Parliament in England said we should have a statue of Winston Churchill. And so they put a sculptor to work, and the man finished his work, and then the moment of unveiling came, and they took off the sheet, and people said, that's not Winston. It's a story. Back to the drawing board. And so the sculptor had to do it all over again. And now if you go to London, England, at the Parliament Buildings, Yes, there is old Winston, exactly like we know him. That's the word which is used right here in verse 3. The exact representation of his being. In other words, Jesus is divine. He is like God. Now, one other comment by way of introduction. I've already told you that this epistle is written to the Hebrews, to Jewish people. And what is the creed of Jewish people even today? Shema. Hear, O Israel, hear, the Lord our God is one. And now, the writers of the New Testament, not only Hebrews, but also (coughs) John, for example, in the book of Revelation. John, in the book of Revelation, doesn't say we have two gods, God the Father and God the Son. No. He puts it this way. He says, God. And then he talks about Father and Son. And there were a way of pronouns. He points out very clearly, and we'll come to that eventually, very clearly that Jesus is divine. What does the writer do in Hebrews? Right at the outset, note now, right at the outset he is saying, Jesus, the Son, no, he doesn't use the word Jesus, he says, Son, and then as the exact representation of his being. There's the divinity. Okay, now authorship. That's point two. First we have the introduction, now point two. Authorship. The authorized version, also known as the King James, features the title, The Epistle of Paul, the Apostle to the Hebrews. Now, it could be that not a soul here in class has a copy of the King James. Am I correct? Thirty years ago, it was mostly King James. (laughs) A lot has changed in the last thirty years. But the King James in the margin adds, authorship uncertain, commonly attributed to Paul. 
Well, you've heard this phrase and the saying, King James, good enough for Paul, good enough for me. Not quite. The history of authorship goes back to the second century in Alexandria, Egypt. In that city, Pantinus, and let me put it on the board for you, Pantinus, about the year 175, Pantinus was the first teacher appointed in a catechetical school. He flourished in the last two decades of the second century and was the primary teacher of Clement of Alexandria. Clement dates from about the year 200. And then Eusebius, the church historian, about 325 in Alexandria, Egypt. Eusebius calls Pantanus, quote, the blessed presbyter has served Eusebius has served a fragment from his hand on the subject of Paul in relation to Hebrews. Here's the quote. For those of you who want to check it, it's found in the history of the church, uh, written by Eusebius. Book 6, section 14, and or chapter 14, section 4. 6, 14, 4. Quote, since the Lord, being the apostle of the Almighty, was sent to the Hebrews, Paul, having been sent to the Gentiles, through modesty did not inscribe himself as an apostle to the Hebrews, both because of respect for the Lord and because he wrote to the Hebrews also out of the abundance being a preacher and apostle for the Gentiles. And that's the quote. Now, Pantanus' successor, Clement of Alexandria, ascribed Hebrews to Paul. He said that the apostle wrote in the Hebrew language and left out his name so as not to rebuff the Jews. And he wrote that Paul had Luke translate the epistle and publish it for the Greek-speaking population. His student origin, O-R-I-G-E-N, not G-I-N, but G-E-N, about the year 220, quoted from Hebrews 200 times and generally accepted it as Pauline. Yet he had misgivings about its authorship and candidly wrote, quote, If any church, therefore, holds this epistle as Paul's, let it be commended. For not without reason have those of old handed it down as Paul's. And now comes a statement that you should remember. But who wrote the epistle, in truth, God knows. End of quote. We don't know. Incidentally, the papyrus document, P46, that dates from about the year 200, has Hebrews between Romans and 1 Corinthians. Concerning the origin of the movement toward Pauline authorship begun by Pantinus, Bruce Metzger of Princeton University, Princeton Seminary, I should say, judiciously, judiciously observes, quote, This opinion of Pantinus, which was later to be adopted by both Clement of Alexandria and Origen, appears to be an attempt at conciliation, made necessary by the existence of two types of the corpus paulinum, the body of Paul, of writings that is, one with and the other without, the epistle to the Hebrews. End of quote. Apostolic authorization was the criterion in Alexandria for accepting a book as scripture. Although the four Gospels were anonymous, the Apostles Matthew and John wrote two of them, according to Papias, 
that is P-A-P-I-A-S, Papias, Papias, whatever your pronunciation, back of Mark stood the apostle Peter who approved of Mark writing his gospel. And Luke had been a faithful companion of Paul. The apostle, by quoting from Luke's gospel, even placed it on the level of the Old Testament scriptures. Now that you have your Bibles open, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. I began reading at verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. Now verse 18. For the scripture says, quote, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. That's a text taken from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And then he continues, and he says, And, meaning, and the scripture says, the worker deserves his wages. That's a text taken word for word from Luke 10, verse 7. So Paul writing 1 Timothy, probably in the year 63, maybe 64, is now saying Luke's gospel is considered scripture. Likewise, the epistle to the Hebrews was declared to be from the hand of Paul and thus because of apostolicity was assured of canonicity. The church in the East expressed the sentiment that just as the Old Testament consisted of the Law and the Prophets, so the New Testament contained the Gospel and the Apostles. In the West, near the end of the 3rd century, Clement of Rome frequently referred to Hebrews, especially in 1 Clement chapter 36. And Polycarp, in his letter to the Philippians 12... Verse 2, that is, not Paul's, but Clement's letter to the Philippians, Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, called Jesus Christ the eternal high priest. And that's taken straight from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, and 7, verse 3. Nearly a century later, in 175, the Muratorian canon failed to include the epistle. Irenaeus, and that is now about the year 185, who was a preacher, or bishop, I should say, in southern France, Irenaeus appears to quote from Hebrews 1, verse 3. He writes that God created all things by the word of his power. And one more, Hippolytus, in the early years of the 3rd century, accepted 13 epistles of Paul, but excluded Hebrews, even though he frequently cited it in his commentary on Daniel. In the middle of the 4th century, Hilary, Bishop of Poitiers in France, tried to bring East and West together on the issue of Pauline authorship for Hebrews by supporting it. And now, now we come to the councils of the 4th century. And I mentioned to you the Council of Hippo Regius, which is in North Africa, close to Carthage. The year is 393. The Council of Hippo Regius ratified the canon of the New Testament, but unfortunately the proceedings of that council are lost. Now, a brief summary of the list of the canonical books were read and accepted by the Council of Carthage and the year is 397. It ratified the canon and listed 13 epistles of Paul and then added of the same, the one, to the Hebrews. Augustine... <coughs> who attended these meetings, regarded Hebrews as canonical and Pauline. 
but soon began to hesitate and regarded the epistle to be anonymous. Augustine, about the year 400, <coughs> refrains from elaborating on its authorship, while his contemporary, Jerome, expressed, expressed his doubt on the Pauline authorship of Hebrews. He writes, this is Jerome writing, quote, The epistle which is inscribed to the Hebrews is received not only by the churches of the East, but also by all church writers of the Greek language before our days, as of Paul the Apostle, though many think that it was from Barnabas or Clement. And it makes no difference whose it is, because it is from a churchman and is celebrated in the daily reading of the churches. End of quote. If some leaders did not attribute the epistle to Paul, then to whom do they ascribe it? Now, here's a long list. I mention Barnabas, Apollos, Luke, Peter, Stephen, Jude, Silas, Priscilla, Mary, and Epaphras. Now, many of these names can be dismissed. Anyone who proposes the name of Priscilla, it was all due respect to the ladies here, anyone who proposes the name Priscilla meets the difficulty of having to explain the author's use of a Greek participle, namely deagumenon, translated as telling, in the masculine gender. Now, if you have your... Bible still open, and then turn with me to chapter 11, verse 32. Chapter 11, verse 32, and I read, And what more shall I say? And then he says, I do not have time to tell. About Gideon and so on. And the I to tell... I do have not, do not have time to, to tell that's found in a participial form in the masculine. Well, one little word will do it. That's the end of Priscilla. <laughs> Luke, as a Gentile Christian, would not be able to write, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. He's a Gentile. And he cannot say our. Only a Jew can do that. Tertullian vaguely refers to an epistle of Barnabas titled To the Hebrews. And he adds that Barnabas was a man who learned his doctrine from the apostles and taught with apostles. End of quote. But no one of the later authors has adopted Tertullian's suggestion. Last. It seems rather strange that the name Apollos, double L, one P, double L, did not surface as the author of Hebrews until Martin Luther, about 1522-23, proposed it in the first part of the 16th century. I wish to look at the authorship of Paul, first in the light of style and syntax, and next with a view to the political and religious climate of the second half of the first century. So we continue, and we now look at style and syntax. It's the third part. Apart from Luke, whose introduction to his gospel is composed in classical Greek, only the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews excels in writing excellent Greek. After your first summer of Greek, you don't go to Hebrews and say, I can read it. Forget it. Its introduction is indeed one of the finest in the entire New Testament. David Black writes, quote, the first four verses of Hebrews are especially condensed. It seems almost incredible that the author could have packed so many relevant themes into a single sentence. The revelatory nature of God, 
the eternal existence of the Son, the agent of creation, the temporal work of the incarnate Redeemer, the exaltation of the Son, and the superiority of the Son to the angels. End of quote. You find this in the Westminster Journal, volume 49, the year 1987. David Black wrote an article titled Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, a study in discourse analysis. Well done. Continuing, in this book, Hebrews, the sentences are balanced, the vocabulary is extensive with 169 words that are peculiar to him, and the rhetorical rhythm and equilibrium are outstanding. An example of rhythm occurs in the Greek alliteration P in the opening sentence in chapter 1. Is there anyone who has a Greek New Testament here in class? Yes, right here. May I have it, please? I would like to read the first sentence in Greek. And all you have to do is just listen. Polumeros kai polutropos paulai ho os la leisas tois patrasan and tois profetai. Beautiful. You know, the man didn't sit down and say, well, I'm going to write an epistle to the Hebrews. Yes. No. No, of course not. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, blessed with intellect and talent, that is, writing talent, he sat down and wrote, Polumeroskai polutropois paulai hotha oslaleisai tois pat Beautiful. Furthermore, the Christian community, at the risk of the loss of life, visited prisoners who were dependent on fellow Christians for their physical needs. Just a word about this. Now, I'm told, if you are imprisoned, you are given three meals a day, you're given a clean bed, you are given television privileges. Uh, you are given entertainment. Uh, the only thing is you can't go outside and walk the streets. You are in prison. In Paul's day, you were put in a cell and you were dependent on friends and family members to come and provide you with food and drink and clothing, and other necessities of life. That's imprisonment. And that's what we're talking about. The Christian community visited those who were imprisoned and supplied them in their daily needs. Again, we are unable to say whether the author of Hebrews is reminding the readers of those harrowing days in the mid-60s. The admonition to resist to the point of shedding blood, in chapter 12, verse 4, need not be taken literally to mean that persecution had not yet occurred. It can mean, metaphorically, to strive to the uttermost against sin. And this is precisely what the author of Hebrews is saying. And now the conclusion to this particular point. We conclude that on the basis of the text of Hebrews, we are unable to come to a definite answer about an early or late date. Although scholars favor an early date, the possibility of a late date cannot be excluded. From both historical and theological perspectives, we obtain insight into a possible date of 80 to 85. And now the fifth section of my paper. And that's called Historical and Theological Considerations. In times of persecution, the gospel with its message of comfort and salvation spreads. But in times of peace and prosperity, material interest takes center stage 
and religion takes a back seat. One example, maybe two. Here's the anecdote about the Soviet ambassador who came to Stockholm, Sweden in the 1980s. And let me first of all say that in Sweden, only 2% of the population goes to church on a given Sunday, and that's about it. The Soviet ambassador, after about half a year, talked to a Swede of high rank and said, Sir, tell me, how did you do it? Do what? He says, well, let me explain. Now, for 70 years, we have been suppressing the Christians in the Soviet Union. We don't want this opium for the masses. And honestly, he says, we have failed. And you, people here in Sweden, you haven't done a thing to the Christians. And only 2% of the population goes to church. How do you do it? And the answer is prosperity. Second example. Who brought down the Berlin Wall in 1989? The answer is the Christians who came to church in Berlin and East Germany and said enough is enough and they were willing to sacrifice themselves just to bring down that ugly wall that was put up in August of 1961. It was a church by way of passive resistance to the Soviet regime in East Germany that brought down the communists in East Germany. It's a wonderful, wonderful. And then East and West were reunited and freedom rang throughout the land. And what is the church attendance today in East Germany? I don't have to explain. Whenever there is persecution, the church continues to grow and expand. Whenever there is a time of peace and prosperity, material interests take over. They take the center stage. Religion takes the back seat. After Nero committed suicide in June of 68, his successor, Vespasian. And here's his name. Vespasian. And by the way, Vespasian was a general who, with his Roman troops, surrounded the city of Jerusalem until the year 69. Now, in 68, as I already said, in June of 68, Nero committed suicide. And then there were three men who thought they could take the throne. They all failed. They all ruled for half a year. Galba, Otho, and Vitellius. We don't even have to mention them. And then the Roman Senate asked Vespasian, General Vespasian, to come, and he became the emperor until the year 79. He was followed by his son Titus. And by the way, Titus became the general after Vespasian left. And Titus destroyed the city of Jerusalem in August of the year 70. Titus became emperor in 79 until the year 81. And his brother Domitian followed him until the year 90. Now, here's the story. Vespasian was a man of peace, a man of justice. And the very first thing he did when he became emperor, he established 
order, harmony, peace, and eventually prosperity. Note, 69 to 79. Ten years of peace, followed by Titus, another two years. Followed by Domitian, who continued until about the year 90. And by about the early 90s, Domitian wanted to be seen as a god. And he wanted the people in the Roman Empire to worship him as God and Lord. That is, Deus et Dominus, the Latin, God and Lord. And in about the year 95, he instituted persecution, and so John was exiled to the island of Patmos, as you read in Revelation chapter 1. So, we have a period of peace and prosperity. Good. Continuing. It is obvious in the epistle to the Hebrews that the writer devotes numerous passages to exhortation. The author writes words of exhortation and even rebuke. He reminds his readers of those earlier days when they endured hardship. And that may point to the four years of persecution the year 64 to 68, during the administration of Nero. Therefore, it is not unreasonable to think that the author composed his epistle in the early 80s. Now, secondly, that's the political aspect. Now, the religious aspect. The religious aspect of Christ's priesthood must have played a role in the timing of the epistle's composition. Note, nowhere in the epistolary literature of Paul, Peter, John, James, and Jude, you may say all of them, is there a single word about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, I must give credit where credit is due, because Paul, in Romans 8, and if you want to look at it a moment, Romans chapter 8 Verse 34. Romans chapter 8, 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, that's a priestly term. He is interceding for us. That's all. So, apart from that text, which is really an indirect allusion to the priesthood, there are no references to the priesthood of Christ. I already mentioned that Matthew developed the kingship of Jesus Christ. John, in his epistle, pardon me, in his gospel, mentions Christ as prophet. But no one writes about the priesthood. Now, the author of Hebrews faces the difficult task of teaching his readers the priesthood of Jesus Christ on the basis of Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20, and Psalm 110, verse 4. Let's have a look at these verses. We go to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14. We read about the war that Abraham had to fight. Begin reading at verse 13. One who had escaped because of this war, came and reported this to Abraham, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Honor, all of whom were allied with Abram. 
When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, that is Lot, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Imagine Abram having a total of 318 men born in his household. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Well, that's not quite next door from Hebron. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned and defeated Kedalomer, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, then we go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Note verse 4. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So there's the name again. Now, what we can say is that these references to Melchizedek point out very clearly that the priesthood of Melchizedek superseded the Aaronic priesthood, which for the recipients was not only hard to understand, but more so hard to accept. Although the author accused them of laziness and being slow learners, they would not take this accusation lightly. For then the Aaronic the priesthood was inviolable and sacrosanct because God has instituted the priesthood by law. But the author boldly writes, and now I want you to turn to chapter 7 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. And I read for you and with you verse 11 and 12. Hebrews 7, 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. Now, if that's not enough to arouse the ire of true blue Jews, <clears throat> then what do you do with the next one? And now I return with you to chapter 7, verse 19. I began reading at verse 18, 7, 18. The former regulation about the priesthood is set aside because it was weak and useless. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Well, <laughs> such remarks made in public would bring down the wrath of the Jewish community and prove to be suicidal. You don't say those things. You get everyone riled up. Because God had given the priesthood to the sons of Levi for a lasting ordinance for generations to come. You find that text in Numbers 18.23. There you have proof. God spoke, God gave a law and said, for generations to come. That law was inseparably linked to the priesthood of Israel, the hierarchy of Israel. No Jew would dare to speak against the law of Moses. Now, remember that Stephen was accused falsely, of course, 
was accused of speaking against this holy place and against the law. You find that in Acts chapter 6, verse 13, some <clears throat> false testimony was given. But in his defense before the Sanhedrin, Stephen proved from Scripture that the Most High does not live in man-made houses of worship. And he quoted Isaiah 61, verse 2, 1 and 2, and he says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And a quote. You find that in Acts 7, verses 49 and 50. In spite of quoting Scripture to defend himself, his, accuser, his accusers stoned him to death. Now, let's go on to Paul. Paul was advised at the end of his third missionary journey, he was advised by James and the elders in Jerusalem to take the Nazarite vow. That was, let your hair grow and then come to the temple and then present an offering to the Lord to purify yourself, and then you would be shown as the most zealous person for the law in all of Israel. And Paul did exactly what they told him. Paul went to the temple, accompanied the four men who had taken the Nazarite vow, he joined in the purification rites, and he paid their expenses, and thus he presented himself as a true blood-conservative, law-abiding Jew. Nonetheless, if it hadn't been for the Roman commander, Paul would have been torn to pieces limb from limb. You find that in Acts 21. Now notice that if we place the composition of Hebrews after the destruction of Jerusalem and the cessation of the Levitical priesthood, the writer would have been able to discuss the matter of Jesus' high priesthood. The absence of any reference to the temple and Jerusalem in this epistle may be an indication that the priestly services had permanently come to an end. This fact gives the writer the freedom to teach the royal priesthood of Christ directly and indirectly in every chapter of his epistle. He did not expect ready acceptance, so that near the end of his letter, he urges his readers to keep him in their prayers and he adds that he has a clear conscience. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 18 and 19. Hebrews 18 and 19. Now, if the readers were thinking of Paul, uh, pardon me, were thinking of the writer of Hebrews as a flaming liberal, you know, if you are a conservative and everything has to be just so, you don't veer to the left, you don't veer to the right, you stay right on path, then you're acceptable. But, oh, if you go a little bit the other way. Now, what does the writer of Hebrews say? Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. Trust us, he says. I particularly urge you to pray that I may be restored to you soon. The writer realizes the difficulty the readers have in abolishing the Levitical precepts and the traditions of their fathers. But he knows that the Old Testament teaches the priesthood of Melchizedek that Christ has fulfilled. Thus the author stands on the firm foundation of Scripture and he serves as an instrument in God's hand to develop and teach the biblical doctrine of the priesthood. Now, a late date for the composition of Hebrews is realistic and even advisable in view of God's progressive revelation that could not have been closed without the doctrine of the high priesthood of Christ the readers who have geographically removed from the Jerusalem scene would be open to learning a new doctrine based on Scripture. And now the concluding remarks. 
A discussion on the authorship of Hebrews leads inevitably to the conclusion that we lack absolute certainty. Yet there are interesting features that seem to shed light on possible authorship. But honesty compels us, honesty compels us to admit that we are unable to prove who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. We do not know the name of the author and, on the basis of tradition, we surmise that soon after the publication of this epistle, the author's name was forgotten. There are few items gathered from the epistle itself that are factual. We know that the writer was a Jewish Christian whose native tongue was Greek. He was an educated person who knew the scriptures by way of the Septuagint. He had preached the gospel in Italy and knew the people there, although at the time he composed the epistle he was far removed from them. As a teacher of the scriptures, he was an, he was an acquaintance of Timothy and knew about his imprisonment. He was not an apostle and had not followed Jesus. Yet in his writing, he refers to the days of Jesus' life on earth, offering up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Hebrews 5, 7. And after everything is said, Origen's saying still rings true. But who wrote the epistle, in truth, God knows. A document written by an anonymous author still has a place in the canon of Scripture, as is evident, for example, in the case of the book of Esther. God knows who wrote Hebrews, and he has placed it in the canon so that the church might know the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ. And that's the end of my paper. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.